0: section 7 of old and new masters by robert lynd this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org wordsworth part 2 his politics just for a handful of silver he left us browning was asked if he really meant the figure in the lost leader for wordsworth and he admitted that, though it was not a portrait, he had Wordsworth vaguely in his mind. We do not nowadays believe that Wordsworth changed his political opinions in order to be made distributor of stamps for the county of Westmoreland, or even, as he afterwards became in addition, for the county of Cumberland. Nor did Browning believe this. He did believe, however, that Wordsworth was a turncoat, a renegade a poet who began as the champion of liberty and ended as its enemy this is the general view and it seems to me to be unassailable mr a v dicey in a recent book the statesmanship of wordsworth attempts to portray wordsworth as a sort of early mazzini one who by many years anticipated thought out and announced the doctrine of nationalism which during at least fifty years of the nineteenth century 1820 to 70, governed or told upon the foreign policy of every European country. I think he exaggerates, but it cannot be denied that Wordsworth said many wise things about nationality, and that he showed a true liberal instinct in the French wars, siding with the French in the early days while they were fighting for liberty, and afterwards siding against them when they were fighting for Napoleonic imperialism. Wordsworth had not yet abandoned his ardor for liberty when, in 1809, he published his tract on the Convention of Sintra. Those who accuse him of apostasy have in mind not his tract and his sonnets of wartime, but the later relapse of faith which resulted in his opposing Catholic emancipation and the Reform Bill, and in his sitting down seriously to write sonnets in favor of capital punishment he began with an imagination which emphasized the natural goodness of man he ended with an imagination which emphasized the natural evil of man he began with faith in liberty he ended with faith in restraint mr dicey admits much of the case against the later wordsworth but his very defence of the poet is in itself an accusation he contends for instance that it was natural that a man who had in his youth seen face to face the violence of the revolutionary struggle in France should have felt the danger of the Reform Act becoming the commencement of anarchy and revolution in England. Quote. Natural it may have been, but nonetheless it was a right about-turn of the spirit. Wordsworth had ceased to believe in liberty." There is very little evidence, indeed, that in his later years Wordsworth remained interested in liberty at all. The most important evidence of the kind is that of Thomas Cooper, the chartist, author of The Purgatory of Suicides, who visited him in 1846 after serving a term in prison on a charge of sedition. Wordsworth received him and said to him, You chartists are right, you have a right to votes, only you take the wrong way to obtain them, you must avoid physical violence. End quote. Referring to the conversation, Mr. Dicey comments quote, At the age of seventy six, the spirit of the old revolutionist and of the friend of the Girondins was still alive. He might not think much of the Whigs, but within four years of his death, Wordsworth was certainly no Tory. End quote there is no reason however why we should trouble our heads over the question whether at the age of seventy-six wordsworth was a tory or not it is only by the grace of god that any man escapes being a tory long before that what is of interest to us is his attitude in the days of his vitality not of his senility in regard to this i agree that it would be grossly unfair to accuse him of apostasy simply because he at first hailed the french revolution as the return of the golden age quote, "bliss was it in that dawn to be alive but to be young was very heaven" end quote. and 10 or 15 years later was to be found gloomily prophesying against a premature peace with napoleon one cannot be sure that if one had been living in those days oneself one's faith in the Revolution would have survived the September massacres, and Napoleon undiminished. Those who had at first believed that the reign of righteousness had suddenly come down from heaven must have been shocked to find that human nature was still red in tooth and claw in the new era. Not that the massacres immediately alienated Wordsworth. In the year following them, he wrote in defense of the French Revolution and incidentally apologized for the execution of king louis if you had attended he wrote in his unpublished apology for the french revolution in seventeen ninety three to the history of the french revolution as minutely as its importance demands so far from stopping to bewail his death you would rather have regretted that the blind fondness of his people had placed a human being in that monstrous situation which rendered him unaccountable before a human tribunal, quote. In the Prelude, too, though it was written early, Wordsworth left to be published after his death, we are given a perfect answer to those who would condemn the French Revolution or any similar uprising on account of its incidental horrors, quote, when a taunt was taken up by the scoffers in their pride, saying, Behold the harvest that we reap from popular government and equality, I clearly saw that neither these nor aught of wild belief engrafted on their views by false philosophy had caused the woe, but a terrific reservoir of guilt and ignorance filled up from age to age, that would no longer hold its loathsome charge, but burst and spread in deluge through the land. End quote. Mr. Dicey insists that Wordsworth's attitude in regard to the horrors of September proves quote, the statesmanlike calmness and firmness of his judgment. End quote. Wordsworth was hardly calm, but he remained on the side of France with sufficiently firm enthusiasm to pray for the defeat of his own countrymen in the War of seventeen ninety three He describes in the prelude how he felt at the time in an English country church, when in the congregation bending all to their great father prayers were offered up, or praises for our country's victories, and mid the simple worshippers perchance I only, like an uninvited guest, whom no one owned, sate silent, shall I add, fed on the day of vengeance yet to come, end quote. The fate that survived the massacres, however, could not survive Napoleon. Henceforth Wordsworth began to write against France in the name of nationalism and liberty. He now becomes a political thinker, a great political thinker, in the judgment of Mr. Dicey. He sets forth a political philosophy, the philosophy of nationalism. He grasped the first principle of nationalism firmly, which is, that nations should be self-governed, even if they are governed badly. He saw that the nation which is oppressed from within is in a far more hopeful condition than the nation which is oppressed from without. In his tract he wrote, The difference between inbred oppression and that which is from without, i.e. imposed by foreigners, is essential, inasmuch as the former does not exclude, from the minds of the people, the feeling of being self-governed, does not imply, as the latter does when patiently submitted to, an abandonment of the first duty imposed by the faculty of reason. Quote. And he went on, quote, If a country have put on chains of its own forging, in the name of virtue, let it be conscious that to itself it is accountable. Let it not have cause to look beyond its own limits for reprove." And, in the name of humanity, if it be self depressed, let it have its pride and some hope within itself. The poorest peasant, in an unsubdued land, feels this pride. I do not appeal to the example of Britain or of Switzerland, for the one is free, and the other lately was free, and I trust will ere long be so again. But talk with the Swede, and you will see the joy he finds in these sensations. With him animal courage, the substitute for many and the friend of all the manly virtues, has space to move in, and is at once elevated by his imagination and softened by his affections. It is invigorated also, for the whole courage of his country is in his breast." That is an admirable statement of the liberal faith. Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman was putting the same truth in a sentence when he said that good government was no substitute for self-government. Wordsworth, however, was not an out-and-out nationalist. He did not regard the principles of nationalism as applicable to all nations alike, small and great. He believed in the balance of power, in which, quote, the smaller states must disappear and merge in the large nations of widespread language, He desired national unity for Germany and for Italy, which was in accordance with the principles of nationalism, but he also blessed the union of Ireland with Great Britain, which was a violation of the principles of nationalism. He introduced certain limitations, indeed, into the nationalist creed, which enable even an imperialist like Mr. Dicey to look like a kind of nationalist. At the same time, Though he acquiesced in the dishonor of the Irish Union, his patriotism never became perverted into jingoism. He regarded the war between England and France not as a war between angel and devil, but as a war between one sinner doing his best and another sinner doing his worst. He was gloomy as a Hebrew prophet in his summoning of England to a change of heart in a sonnet written in 1803, England, the time is come when thou shouldst wean thy heart from its emasculating food. The truth should now be better understood. Old things have been unsettled, we have seen, fair seed-time better harvest might have been, but for thy trespasses, and this day, if for Greece, Egypt, India, Africa, aught good were destined, thou wouldst step between. England, all nations in this charge agree— but worse, more ignorant in love and hate, far, far more abject is thine enemy. Therefore the wise pray for thee, though the freight, of thy offences be a heavy weight. O oh, grief, that earth's best hopes rest all with thee! Quote. All this means merely that the older Wordsworth grew, the more he became concerned with the duties rather than the rights of man the revolutionary creed seems at times to involve the belief that if you give men their rights they will perform their duties as a necessary consequence the conservative creed on the other hand appears to be based on the theory that men as a whole are scarcely fit for rights but must be kept to their duties with a strong hand neither belief is entirely true As Mazzini saw, the French Revolution failed because it emphasized the rights so disproportionately in comparison with the duties of man. Conservatism fails, on the other hand, because its conception of duty inevitably ceases before long to be an ethical conception. Duty in the mouth of reactionaries usually means simply obedience to one's betters. The melancholy sort of moralist frequently hardens into a reactionary of this sort. Burke and Carlyle and Ruskin, all of them blasphemed the spirit of liberty in the name of duty. Mr. Dicey contends that Burke's and Wordsworth's political principles remained essentially consistent throughout. They assuredly did nothing of the sort. Burke's principles during the American War, and his principles at the time of the French Revolution, Were divided from each other like crabbed age and youth. Burke lost his beliefs as he did his youth. And so did Wordsworth. It seems to me rather a waste of time to insist at all costs on the consistency of great men. The great question is not whether they were consistent, but when they were right. Wordsworth was in the main right in his enthusiasm for the French Revolution, and he was in the main right in his hatred of Napoleonism but when once the napoleonic wars were over he had no creed left for mankind he lived on till eighteen fifty but he ceased to be able to say anything that had the ancient inspiration he was at his greatest an inspired child of the revolution he learned from france that love of liberty which afterwards led him to oppose france speaking of those who like himself had changed in their feelings towards france He wrote, Though there was a shifting in temper of hostility in their minds as far as regarded persons, they only combated the same enemy opposed to them under a different shape, and that enemy was the spirit of selfish tyranny and lawless ambition. That is a just defense, but the undeniable fact is that, time after time, Wordsworth ceased to combat the spirit of selfish tyranny and lawless ambition, as he once had done. There is no need to blame him. Also, there is no need to defend him. He was human. He was tired. He was growing old. The chief danger of a book like Mr. Dicey's is that, in accepting its defense of Wordsworth's maturity, we may come to disparage his splendid youth." Mr. Dicey's book, however, is exceedingly interesting in calling attention to the great part politics may play in the life of a poet. Wordsworth said in 1833 that, quote, Although he was known to the world only as a poet, he had given twelve hours' thought to the condition and prospects of society, for one to poetry. End quote. He did not retire into a wise passiveness as regards the world's affairs until he had written some of the greatest political literature, and in saying this I am thinking of his sonnets rather than of his political prose, that has appeared in England since the death of Milton. End of section seven.